I think it must be really hard when you're when you're somebody who's so closely associated with a particular fashion scene because you know fashion scenes come and go, and uh, if you want to carve out a career that's going to last your whole life, then you know you have to at some point you have to choose whether you're going to stick to that and be associated with that forever, or if you're going to change, or if you're going to follow something, if you're going to set a new trend yourself, and, and so on. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see where she takes it. Welcome back. You're listening to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Here at Japan Forward, we bring to our audience issues that are of real importance in and about Japan from the perspective and context of people inside of Japan, as expressed or captured by them who truly understand the nuances of culture, issues, and current events. In today's session, we chat with veteran music journalist Daniel Robson. Editor in chief of popular video game and entertainment website IGN Japan. Recently, he interviewed Japanese pop star Kyari Pamir Pamir and shares his experience with meeting her. Also, he tells us a bit about his job with IGN Japan and what it's like to produce content reviewing popular video games and movie releases. All right, seems like a lot of people have joined in, so thank you for everyone for joining our Twitter spaces this Hello, week. Hello, everybody. We- yeah, we have special guest Daniel Robson from IGN Japan and a friend from Japan Forward. Um, and just I guess before we get started, I'd like to introduce some of our members from Japan Forward, starting with myself. I'm Galileo. I work with the editorial team on publishing content and creating content. And most of my job also works with measuring our performance online. And we are joined by our editor-in-chief, Naito-san. Currently, he's on. Yep, Naito-san, you're on. Ah, hi, hi. As uh, Yasuo, uh, editor-in-chief of Japan Forward. And uh, what shall I start? And, uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, Naito-san uh, uh, will explain who, who we are, and then yeah, we can get started. Yeah. All right, okay. Well, thanks, Galileo. Uh, well, for, for anybody who are unfamiliar with us, we started Japan Forward in 2017 with the goal to reach global audience sharing stories, opinions, and editorial contents from Japan. Well, English uh, language media sometimes lacks perspectives and sentiments from people inside of Japan. So our mission shared by our supporters and followers is to raise awareness of the Japanese spirit, culture, and tradition. So let's start. Yes. So thank you for that, Naito-san. And again, if if you're knowing about us for the first time, check out our website and... um, our guest, Daniel Robson, who published a couple of stories with us recently. You'll read his pieces there and some of his pieces in the past. And um, another person from our team, I'm not sure if she can speak right now, but Ariel is on the call. And Susan will introduce themselves shortly. Hey, Daniel. Nice to talk to you. Hey, nice to talk to you. <laughs> and hi, Naito-san as well. Yeah, hi. Hi, Daniel. Hi. So, Ariel, can you give yourself um, give you a quick intro about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Ari Bezeto. I am a journalist with Japan Forward. I have been with Japan Forward for uh, three years. This is my fourth year. Uh, and I cover a range of topics and uh, from culture to, you know, economic politics. And uh, I've worked with Daniel before when we covered Fuji Rock a couple of years ago. So it's uh, ex- exciting to be here to talk about music again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, back in the times when people had music festivals out to pause and stuff like that. I miss it so badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we also have Susan, if Susan, you don't mind. Hey, Daniel. I'm uh, Susan Komori, and I'm the uh, senior for Japan Forward. I'm uh, usually the first one that uh, goes through Daniel's 
pieces and tries to figure out how to uh, push them forward. Uh, learn a lot from them. I've learned tons about Fuji Rock, which we all miss because we haven't been able to send people live for a couple of years, uh, but uh, also about all the uh, upcoming games and what was best last year and this year and other pop culture, uh, the Carrie Pamukamu, who's going to the United States. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Yeah, me too. All right. And yeah, without further ado, our guest, but not just a guest, a friend and, you know, a friend, a friend of Japan Forward and a friend of ours is Daniel Robson. He's published about 24 articles with Japan Forward. The first one in 2018, when he was covering the Fuji Rock Festival. Um, and that was, I think the very first one was called, um, was about The Cure. Um, looking up the title now, it says, here's what The Cure's audience at Fuji Rock thought about their set. And that's, um, I think that's your most read article from Japan. Oh, really? Wow, okay. Yeah. And your other, you also have interviews with artists like Glim Spanky in Japan. And you had the opportunity to interview the Chemical Brothers. And there's also a YouTube video on our channel on that. And recently, and why, that's why we're speaking with you today, is um, you published an interview with Kerry. Kerry, can you come here? Kerry, can you come here? Kerry, can you come here? It's all right. And, uh, that's that was a really nice write up. There's two parts to it, and we also I saw I read the the article also on IGN Japan, and you also wrote um, an extensive review of a highly anticipated game release, Elden Ring. So we'll go through that today. So Daniel, welcome to welcome to the show. Hi everybody, thanks very much. Nice to meet you all. <laughs> it's good to have you. All Thank right, you. so let's get, let's get let's get started. Um, so my first question is. Uh, I read your interview and I've also, uh, not in close contact, but through my previous, um, was uh, in contact with Kari Pam Pamu's um, agency and I've met some of their people. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess my first question is, and you know, everyone knows that she's an icon. She represents a lot of facets of Japanese pop culture that makes her stand out from her peers in the music industry. Um, in your mind or in your opinion, were there any particular tracks or videos mm -hmm that kind of helped her establish this image? Okay, sure. Well, I think um, the, the most obvious answer would be her very first uh, single, Pom Pom Pom, which I'm sure everybody's come into contact with at some point or another. Um, it was released in 2011. It's had uh, 180 million views on YouTube alone um, at this point. And, um, you know, the video is such a sort of um, an abrasive <laughs> uh, visual attack with uh, it's extremely colorful um, and imaginative and fantastical video um, accompanied by uh, a very sort of catchy and memorable um, song. Uh, all of her music is... Um, produced by uh, Nakata Yastaka, yeah. who is um, a famous uh, producer here in Japan, um, who he's best well known for being the producer of Perfume. Um, he also has his own unit, uh, Capsule, and um, I've got to interview him before and, and also Perfume a number of times. And um, But this was my first time to speak with, with Kari. But uh, I think it's interesting having, because generally speaking, you know, sort of pop groups or idol groups in Japan, um, usually each song is written by a different songwriter or maybe a group of songwriters or maybe, yeah. you know, kind of committee or thing, things like that. Um, Whereas in the case of Kari Pamu Pamu and Perfume, um, in, in both their cases, you know, they're relying on this one guy to write every single song they've basically ever released. Perfume had a couple of singles before they, they were hooked up with him. But aside from that, uh, everything, both those artists have released have been produced by the same guy. Um, what that gives you is kind of a consistency across music. Um, he's a very uh, futurist kind of um, 
he draws on sort of minimal house and um, dance music with a very, very pop uh, bent and, and very strong melodies and hooks that are very memorable. And, you know, he, he's one of, in a sort of a J-pop scene where there is quite a lot of um, old fashioned music production going on, he's sort of relatively sort of cutting edge. And uh, yeah, so I'm a big fan of all of his work and uh, including Kelly Pammy Pammy. I think another song of hers that people might recognize and that was another big part of sort of constructing her image was uh, Fashion Monster. Um, so Kelly Pammy Pammy, aside from being a, a singer, um, she's also, uh, she started out as like a fashion blogger stroke fashion model uh, as well. And so, you know, her sort of visual image and this very um, uh, kawaii, uh, very sort of uh, Harajuku style um, aesthetic is something that she's very closely associated with. And uh, Fashion Monster was a big showcase for that. Yeah, I also thought about that and how that branched off into like brands as well with like the Monster Cafe, the Kali Cafe mm. in Harajuku. Yes, that, that was produced by um, the guy who uh, produced her early videos, um, uh, her, her, um, styled her for her early videos, um, Sebastian Masuda. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, he, he has a, a brand here called um, 6% Doki Doki. And uh, they are... Uh, <laughs> yes, I've heard of that. I know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very closely associated with that same kind of, um, you know, slightly grotesque, um, over-the-top, colourful uh, Harajuku uh, fashion style that was especially popular, you know, um, from about 10 years ago to about five years ago. Um, but, but the Kawaii Monster Cafe was great. He, he produced that um, the interior of this place that was just like stepping into a, a, a dream world yeah. <laughs> you know, you're inside this you're supposed to be inside a monster's stomach and every section of the the restaurant is themed in different ways and extremely sort of colorful and um explosive um and it was and they, they would have live performances going on and that kind of thing uh, unfortunately it closed down after um after japan's letting in tourists um over the yeah. last couple of years yeah I was, I was fortunate enough to see it both during as opening as normal cafe also visiting it as um, an, an event during Halloween, mm. and yeah, those both experiences were, <laughs> were like, wow, it's yeah, exactly a dream. I don't know, it's fantasy. It's a mixture of a different, a lot of different themes. But yeah. I can just say I always enjoyed myself, even though I'm, I wouldn't say I'm into like kawaii culture. I'm mm. just more about fascinated how this, like how it came into existence. And, well, I think. Um, it's interesting because, I mean, I think somebody like Kari Pami Pami is, is a strong kind of example of how um, Japan's um, sort of fashion scene has gone on to influence um, fashion scenes around the world. Uh, and of course, this is, you know, it's, it's come up many times over the years, but certainly in terms of the um, kawaii culture um, being broadly accepted overseas, I think Kari Pami Pami uh, was a big part of that. And um, I think when, you know, a, a certain demographic of tourists, when they come to visit Japan, what they have in mind is that sort of, mm. you know, very colorful aesthetic. And so a, a restaurant like um, Kawaii Monster Cafe is a great, because, uh, you know, really you come to Japan and uh, actually the architecture here is generally quite plain and <laughs> gray and boxy. And, uh, mm. you know, to, to find a sort of a, a big box of sparkles and and uh, and, 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 and colorful mess uh, in the form of a restaurant is, uh, is an enticing place for tourists to go. And I think that was, you know, made up a lot of their clientele which i imagine explains why they you know had to close down unfortunately mm. well i've met some um, young kids in the, uh, the united states that were very uh big fans of uh carrie and pop culture in japan and they they only wanted to come to harajuku and i think they really didn't <laughs> care about any other part of japan but what's interesting to me is that now carrie is, seems to be reaching beyond that and you know she's going to california and she seems to be interested in all this international um collaborations and things um is this mm. where she wants to go with her life i mean she's certainly brought 
uh, Kaui culture, I thought, to the international scene. Um, but is she now then, uh, you know, going to become, change, you know, so her, her um, orientation and really become a more international um, musician, mm. talent? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. So when, when I was talking to her, um, I asked her about these kind of questions. Um, first of all, uh, Kelly's performed overseas actually quite a lot since uh, since her debut. Um, she's had a lot of interest from overseas and she's performed. You know, I was very surprised to see her 10 years ago go to perform in England, where I'm from, and, and places like that. You know, you would never have imagined it um, when I was, before I moved to Japan, something like that. Um, and Coachella, she's performing at the Coachella Festival in California in April this year, which she was booked for originally two years ago, and the whole festival was cancelled um, in the wake of the pandemic. Um, and so this is obviously a very, very big stage for her. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely think um, it's it's a really exciting development um, in, in her career. Um, during the interview, I asked her about, because as I said before, she's worked entirely solely with uh, the same uh, producer for her uh, whole career, um, Yastaka Nakata. And I asked her if she's interested to, to maybe work with somebody else someday. And, uh, you know, she said that it's something that she thinks about sometimes. And in the interview, she mentioned uh, Yell, who is um, a French uh, pop group. Uh, so, well, pop, sort of dance, dance music stroke pop group, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Similar kind of vibe in a way, in so much as that they're... Um, using um, dance music with pop music, um, but a little bit more sort of uh, left field maybe. Um, and uh, anyway, they're, they're a great band. I've interviewed them before as well when they were in Japan, but um, they've been here for festivals and things like that. And uh, Kelly said that when she performed in Paris, um, the members of Yale came to see her show mm-hmm. and they said that they'd like to collaborate with her someday. And so it's something that she's kept in her mind and hopes that the opportunity arises. Um, yeah, so I don't know. It's, um, you know, I think she, she, in the interview, she talked about how, um, I asked her because basically the, the, the um, hook for this interview in the first place was that she's just um, celebrated her 10th anniversary since her debut. Mm. And um, so we were kind of looking back on the past 10 years, but also looking at, ahead at the next 10 years. And I asked her, you know, in 10 years time, when you're celebrating your 20th anniversary, where do you think you'll be at that point? And she said that um, she feels like she doesn't necessarily have to be on stage in front of an audience as the front person singing. Um, she could be just as happy in the background, uh, working on fashion brands and she has her own, um, uh, various sort of fashion brands like uh, a perfume line and a hair care line and things like that, that she's, um, launched. So, you know, yeah, it could be that she, you know, musically, um, spins out into those directions and starts working with other artists, or it could be that she shrinks back from music a little bit altogether. Um, I guess time will tell. Can she, she do both? I mean, she, Definitely could do both, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. On, on the product uh, issue, I, I read that in your interview. I, I really enjoyed the interview a lot. Thank um, you. But uh, I, I couldn't tell, is she planning on marketing these um, products overseas as well as in Japan oh. or just in Japan? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I think uh, so far they've only been launched in Japan. I don't know if she plans to take any of those overseas. Well, maybe yeah, she can sure. take some to the Coachella Valley. I mean, that's a good place to sort of keep <laughs> um, It's a great place. I've been there and uh, yeah. I, think, I think it's fabulous that she's going to play there. If there's anywhere that people are in strong need of hair care products, it's at a summer music festival. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Good, good call. <laughs> um. I was wondering if I could ask you a bit more about, uh, you know, Kai Pambi Pambi and her connection with Harajuku fashion and just kawaii culture in general. In her interview, I thought she said something quite interesting is that uh, it's almost uh, paradoxical, but how kawaii culture seems almost to be more popular abroad now than in Japan. There seems to be a bit of a dip in popularity in this uh, sort of subculture, if you will. I was wondering if you could expand a bit more on that. Like, what did you think about this part of the interview? 
Yeah, sure. So I think in, in her comment, she wasn't saying that it's dipping in Japan so much as um, she was saying that the word kawaii, as it's spelled mm-hmm. in English, as in K-A-W-A-I-I, has a different meaning than, than she associates with how the word is used in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. And that it is a sort of a Westerner's view on what fashion means in Japan. Uh, that's how she sees it. Um, which I definitely think, you know, that's... A, that's a really good observation. I think, um, you know, in, in Japan, like anywhere, fashion changes all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And a place like Harajuku, you know, it's, it's actually made up of all kinds of different fashion cultures, not just the kawaii fashion. Um, there's a lot going in, in going on in um, Harajuku. But her, um, her observation was that, you know, in the wake of the um, uh, pandemic, you see mm-hmm. less, you see fewer people out on the streets in um, mm-hmm. Harajuku just sort of peacocking and, and showing off their mm-hmm. fashion and that kind of thing because, you know, people are being careful and staying home. And so, mm-hmm. and of course, because there are no, you know, foreign tourists and fewer domestic tourists mm-hmm. in the area. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she feels that the, the, the town of Harajuku itself has become a little bit sort of um, zapped of its energy a little bit. But at the same mm-hmm. time, when, when, when she looks online and she looks on Instagram and TikTok and she sees people who are celebrating Kawaii culture all around the world, she sees mm-hmm. that actually that the, that sort of fashion culture is strong in, you know, around the world and people are finding ways to celebrate it. And so she was saying that she hopes to find some sort of inspiration from that to bring back to Harajuku in Japan and uh, sort of reinstate some of that um, pizzazz in the local scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely then supporting Susan's point that she should just bring all of her products to Coachella and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, what, what do you think the reception will be of uh, Kari Pami Pami at like a massive stage like Coachella? I mean, obviously there have been other Japanese artists that have been uh, abroad as well at such a big festival like that. But what, what are your mm. predictions? I mean, I'm sure like, you know, we can't say very much at this point, but what do you think? Sure. Uh, Perfume played at Coachella a few years ago as well, which I, yeah, was, extraordinarily, exactly. I was extraordinarily jealous of everyone. <laughs> <to see> that. <laughs> um, but no, Kari Pami Pami, uh, she puts a lot of um, thought into her live performances and, you know, it's not just being up on stage and singing it's about you know the, the choreography and the outfits and the backgrounds and all of that stuff um and you know i've seen her a number of times in japan and it's always um quite a fun you know just a fun show and a fun night out um she said regarding coachella that she's been watching videos of beyonce and ariana grande at uh, past coachella appearances and although she feels she can't hit that high bar necessarily that she wants to you know think about the most exciting show that she can put on for the audience there uh, i certainly think like you know coachella has been unable to take place for two years um and just generally music festivals over the past couple of years have been you know um massively either haven't happened or they've happened at reduced scale and so i think it's going to be just so exciting <laughs> to, to finally, you know, for, especially for fans that have been waiting to see her, to finally see her come out on stage. Yeah, I think it should be a really, really fun show. Daniel, I got a question uh, regarding of, of, you know, the kawaii cu- culture. Mm. See, in Japan, you know that, uh, you know, the kawaii sometimes uses not only for the young generations, but the elder generations. Kawaii, for example, <laughs> kawaii obachan. Yeah. Uh, Hawaii grandma. See, uh, uh, the, uh, what do you think? The, uh, the, the carry will become a kind of Kawaii, uh, continuously, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, changing her, her image uh, to the Kawaii line or, uh, what's your kind of opinion? Yeah. I asked her whether she's sort of, um, uh, how conscious she is of the changes within the fashion culture and keeping up with those kind of things or, or, or whatever. And she said that she doesn't really follow friends so much as just, you know, does, does what it feels like. Um, and I think, you know, you probably noticed, uh, anyone who's been a fan of her for a while might notice that she's, uh, she's, you know, gone on and she's got a little bit older. She's changed from the extremely sort of brash, colorful, um, outfits that she used to wear to something a little bit more refined as she's, uh, 
you know, as she's got a little older and, um, she, she actually puts a lot of videos on, um, TikTok and Instagram live and that kind of thing and, and live streams from her house playing, playing video games or dancing and things like that. And, um, it's always very, um, playful. And in that regard, it's very kawaii in the traditional sense of the word as in meaning cute or adorable, um, more so than the, you know, what, what people might associate with kawaii, um, fashion or kawaii culture. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, I think that the, the definition of, uh, fashion and the definition of kawaii fashion in, in Japan has, has probably changed a little bit in that regard. Yeah. And yeah. We'll, we'll go on to do so. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, you know, see her evolution in kawaii way. <laughs> I, mean, you know. I think it must be really hard when you're, when you're somebody who's so closely associated with a particular fashion scene, because, you know, fashion scenes come and go. And, uh, if you want to carve out a career that's going to last your whole life, then, you know, you have to, at some point you have to choose whether you're going to stick to that and be associated with that forever or if you're going to change or if you're going to follow something if you're going to set a new trend yourself and, and so on so yeah i think it'll be interesting to see where she takes it yeah i agree thanks sure <laughs> okay um quick question for me um about music videos on, on mm-hmm. her music videos so I've, i think i've seen nearly all her music videos <laughs> uh, just leading up to our talk today and just because it's one of the things you need to watch when she announces she's got a new video in Japan. It's something people kind of like get drawn to. Like, okay, I need to watch this video on YouTube. Sure. Um, and, and I think that her last video was like the Gum Gum Gum. Oh, Gum Gum Girl? Gum Gum Girl. Yeah. Had like some action scenes that was different from her, like usual, typical, her typical kawaii um, persona. Oh, right. That's for, that's the one where she's um, doing sort of ninjutsu moves yeah. and stuff, right? That's right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I just wanted to say that the reason why I was drawn to this is because I was, I'm a fan of like Rurouni Kenshi and yeah. the person who was in charge of like the action choreographer from the movies was actually involved in this. Um, oh, movie. really? So uh, that was also like another reason why I wanted to watch it. Well, I wanted to ask you, it's like, is this so cool. a preview of what she's interested in the future? Like moving away from her oh. like typical, um, when she started, she was like 18, she was still her teens, but now she's like, not now, but a couple of years ago now. Was it last year? She she had this action type of um, music video. Um, is this a bit of what might come, or do you have any? Yeah, yeah. So so this particular track, um, Gum Gum Girl, uh, it was used as a theme tune for a video game called Ninjala, and so obviously Ninjala is a game that uses uh, sort of ninja moves and that kind of thing. Um, it's a it's a game that's um, aimed at maybe a slightly younger audience. It's kind of a battle royale type game. Uh, where you are playing in a very sort of colorful environment and it's it's very sort of um, influenced by that Harajuku aesthetic and also games like Splatoon with a very sort of colorful vibe. And so it was quite a natural um, crossover for her to do the theme tune for that game. Um, and because the game has, has this uh, sort of theme of, you know, ninja fighting, I guess that's probably why they, they took a similar theme for this video. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't ask her about it directly, but I did read somewhere else in an interview her talking about how she actually learned all of that choreography herself and how to do all of those ninja moves. And it was, you know, a big challenge for her. And she, she's definitely toyed with that um, imagery before because uh, she has a single Ninja Bambang, which was yes, yes. a huge hit uh, a few years ago, um, which is a similar sort of aesthetic and, and using that kind of, um, you know, playing, playing with traditional um, Japanese cultural tropes uh, while also throwing in a completely new direction. And uh, so in a way, it's kind of like a sequel. <laughs> it's almost like a sequel to that video. Yeah. You mentioned um, Nindala, a game, and this may be a good segue into our next topic for today, is um, the review 
on Elden Ring. Mm. Uh, so to our listeners, um, so besides music content, like artists and interviews with artists and music events, um, Daniel also publishes a um, regular gaming-related um, content on Japan Forward um, called Gamers World. And I think you've published about 10, 10 articles on game uh, with the Gamers World, Monica, um, mm-hmm. where the reviews... Um, or just a list of uh, games to it's, watch for the year, predictions and stuff like that, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's intended as... Um, so my, my day job, my main job is um, I am the chief editor of IGN Japan, which is, uh, which is a video game, video game and movies uh, news site in Japan. And so I, IGN is um, a global uh, brand. It's originally from the US, but um, I, I run the, the Japanese edition of the site here in Japan. And so, um, you know, I deal with, with video game news and uh, movie news uh, every day as part of my, my, my job. And so the idea of the column Games World, it's supposed to be kind of um, sort of a peek behind the curtain a little bit, what goes into uh, running a publication like that. Um, and so it's a monthly uh, column where I talk about, you know, some of the things that happened that month, um, some of the big game news, and then how we as an editorial team dealt with with that news. Um, so uh, this month's column uh, was published yesterday. Um, it's focusing on a, on a few things, but the main sort of thrust is uh, a new game called Elden Ring, which just came out today. And um, <clears throat> we, we published a review of this game yesterday. And uh, it's a highly anticipated game people have been waiting for for, for a few years. And um, it, it, uh, it went on to be, um, when it was, when the review embargo lifted yesterday, it went on to be the, the, one of the highest reviewed games of all time. Um, and for us, you know, it's, it's a huge challenge, um, preparing a review of a game like that. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about some of the, some of the work that goes into that in uh, this month's column. Yeah. I read the review and like my first impression was, um, wow, you guys are under so much pressure. <laughs> I shared this <laughs> with like the, the editorial team. I was like, there's this big game title. There's the Game of Thrones creator George R. R. Martin, he's involved. Um, Dark Souls creator Hidetaka Miyazaki, he's involved. And then you've got this job to review like this highly anticipated game. It's like mm. either you're gonna be hated by the internet <laughs> or you know you're gonna gain like good followership, readership. And I think it just you don't know, I really felt that well, wow, there's so much pressure. You have to play the game itself, spend lots of hours, go in and out of that. And, mm. and yeah, come up with a review. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a lot of work. Um, I should just just to clarify. Um, I didn't. Our review was not written by me. It was written by one of our yeah. uh, freelance writers. But um, yeah, no. In in the case of like generally speaking, most games, um, you know, will will be sent the game maybe uh, a little bit before it's released um, to start working on a review, and then <clears throat> that period of time varies from game to game. And so we might get it a few weeks ahead. We might get it you know, a day ahead. In some cases, we don't even get it ahead of time at all. Um, and so depending on um, how early we get it and what the um, uh, embargo is, so where we're allowed to um, publish our impressions and where things like, um, you know, patches come along in the uh, in the review process and things like that to update the content of the game as it gets closer to completion. Um, depending on all of these things, you know, it can be like a huge amount of pressure on the writer and also the editorial team um, to prepare it in time. And so in the case of uh, Elden Ring, um, our writer had about a week or so to play a game that uh, is, you know, coming from a development studio from software that is renowned for making games that are extremely hard. (laughs) And so they have a very high level of difficulty. Uh, And and also in this case, you know, it's an open world game, uh, which means you can, you know, go in any direction and do, do things in whatever order you want to. So it's, it's um, not necessarily obvious what you're supposed to do next. Um, although the game does, does indicate, you know, so, so that to keep you on track. Um, and 
um, you know, usually if you if you were playing a game like that and you were finding it difficult, you were having difficulty with it. As a consumer, you know, you can just go straight onto uh, an FAQ or a walkthrough or a watch a play video or something on YouTube um, to see uh, some tips. You know, how to how to get past this this area or how to beat that boss. Um, but the game's not out yet, so none of that stuff exists yet. We're still making all of that stuff, and so um, it's very, 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 very difficult job to do um and for our reviewer he spent uh 70 hours to beat the game uh and, and then you know then you want to spend some time thinking and reflecting and then uh you know put your thoughts into words and then uh once we finally get the review copy then we check it you know with our editorial team and look it over and is this bit okay is that bit okay are you sure about this are you sure about that um and then once it's ready to go and, and ready to be published we have to think about uh in the case of you know, IGN, uh, Japan, we publish a lot of video content as well. And so now we have a written review, but maybe we want to make a video version. So in the case of Elden Ring, uh, now we have to match everything that the writer said in his review to video footage that our team have been um, recording while they've been playing through it as well. Um, we also... I, it it yeah, sounds like just a pressure cooker, Daniel. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, we also published uh, around the time of the embargo, um, you know, just a straight gameplay video and then another video with some other members of our team talking about their um, impressions of the game and things like that. Um, you know, the idea is basically we want to have as much um, information ready so that as possible so that people who are considering playing it or buying it can, you know, uh, know whether they uh, still want to buy it or play it or, or um, just as maybe some people are committed to playing it, but they just want to know what the critical consensus is and that kind of thing. And so to have before it in a timely fashion. Yeah. Let, me, let me just interrupt you. Sure. Before some of us go on and make that kind of decision, uh, I read your uh, January, your, your first January column where you talked about last year's uh, top uh, videos, video games, and your favorite, uh, The Guardian of the Galaxy by Marvel. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, want to, I would want to know, uh, it, I do want to know, and I imagine many others do, uh, so how does this compare to those to Cyberpunk or the... Guardian of the Galaxy, you know, last sure. top videos. How, how are, you know, what are we talking about? Yeah, sure. So um, I haven't had a chance to play the final game yet. Um, I played uh, a network test that was uh, available a couple months ago, and now the game's out today. I have my copy, and I'm, I'm ready to get into it over the weekend. Um, but um, basically, I mean, as I said before, it's, it's one of the high, most highly scored video games of all time. It's sitting at a 97% on Metacritic, which is extremely high. I mean, it's as close to 100% as you can pretty much get. Um, and from software, the the um, the developer that makes this game, um, they're famous for the Dark Souls series, Bloodborne, Sekiro. Uh, these are all extremely high quality games um, that are beloved by people around the world. They also come with a very very high difficulty level, so they're not for everybody necessarily. Um, so yeah, I think um, you know our, our reviewer gave it a ten out of ten, and my my expect expectations for it are extremely high. Um, but yeah, I haven't had a chance to, to get sunk into it yet. Uh, a game like Guardians of the Galaxy, which I loved uh, last year, that's um, based on the Guardians of the Galaxy characters from the Marvel comics and was uh, developed by um, uh, Eidos Montreal uh, in, uh, in, in uh, Canada and uh, published by Square Enix. Um, that is a, a very different kind of game because it's a very uh, sort of fun, um, colorful, story-driven game that's all about spending time with these fun characters from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Whereas uh, Elden Ring is a game about uh, <laughs> immersing yourself in a kind of a hellscape <laughs> uh, where everything is trying to kill you. So it's, um, I think they're going to be very different experiences. Yeah. 
So the review is a pressure cooker, but the game is too. That's what it sounds like. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to say that if I had to choose, I'd probably pick the Carrie Piam you um, interview over the testing this game, but uh, uh, they were both great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So I, I was um, uh, originally a music journalist for a long time, for about 15 years um, before um, sort of sliding into game coverage. And so, um, you know, it's always really fun to go back and have a chance to go and talk to musicians again, because it's what I used to specialize in, uh, interviewing music artists. Um, yeah, so it's really fun. But of course, uh, covering video games, covering movies every day is... Uh, pretty fun too <laughs> just a quick question on again on Elden Ring I know um, Cyberpunk is thinking mm. about releasing an anime um, mm, that's right there's been talk about that I think either this year or next year um, um, it's originally it was announced for this year but we haven't had an update for a while so uh, who knows whether it will come out on yeah. time or not it yeah. might be a bit early but do you see Elden Ring kind of going into that route with uh, creating more fan experiences or yeah um so in the case of um cyberpunk yeah they're, they're having uh, cyberpunk 2077 which was a, a video game that came out last year um that has um a uh, an anime being produced by studio trigger which is a very famous japanese uh, animation studio um killer kill right that's right killer kill and uh, promare and things like that but oh, yeah. um in terms of um uh, elden ring i think it's very unlikely that we'll see a similar development because um as I say, uh, the studio from software, they're very well known for their Dark Souls series. Yeah. Um, and these games are hugely popular and they have resisted any form of, you know, turning it into a show, turning it into a movie or anything like that. Um, the uh, director on those games and the head of the studio, um, Miyazaki-san, uh, he is, uh, he grew up uh, reading a lot of uh, fantasy novels and books and playing tabletop games. And, you know, I've interviewed him many times in the past and, um, I even worked with him briefly when I, I worked at PlayStation for a short time, um, just at the time when his game Bloodborne was, uh, coming out. Yeah. And, um, so I, I spoke with him quite a lot and, you know, he, he said that basically his, um, he wants to leave space in his games for the audience to, uh, piece piece the, the puzzle pieces together and work out what the story is and work out what the lore is. When you play these games, you know, a lot of, a lot of video games might come with um, maybe several hours worth of, um, you know, cutscenes and movies and, and, and things with characters interacting with each other. But his games don't really do that as much. It, mm -hmm. It's much more about finding items uh, out in the world or meeting, talking to characters out in the world, reading description, descriptive text uh, on things that you find and pick up, and then putting together all the pieces and trading it with other people who are playing as well and, and sort of sharing information and coming up with theories and that kind of thing. And to be honest, I think that's worked for them extremely well. And it's been sort of a key to the success of, of those games is that you know, because nothing's set in stone, because it's not obvious, um, it leaves a lot of um, room for the player's imagination. And it's really fun to try and decode all these things. So yeah, I, I, I suspect that in the case of Elden Ring as well, although it probably would be very well suited to being turned into a, a series like that. I think, um, especially with the, the involvement of um, George R.R. R. Martin, who's the creator of Game of Thrones and who wrote all of the, um, the lore and the, 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 back, the backstory for this game. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty unlikely that they'll take it in, in the direction of a, a TV show, an anime movie or anything like that. Yeah, um, yeah I wanted to point that out because I, I'm a fan of Trigger Studio. Yeah. And mm. I thought Cyberpunk was was already going to beat just the game itself. And there's lots of fan um, fan fiction and um, around around that mm. around that narrative. And I was thinking if if this was the route that Elden Ring would go uh, with with 
you know, the open world gameplay and yeah. the talk of metaverse. I mean, it would definitely, it would definitely fit, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, in the old days, um, generally speaking, m- movies and, and shows that were adapted from video games were nearly always uh, very bad. And, um, recently we're seeing more and more examples of, of good ones. This is something else that I touched on in my column this, this month, actually. Um, you know, we've seen movies like, um, detective Pikachu was really well received and Sonic the Hedgehog uh, was really well received. Um, more recently, um, in terms of like streaming TV on Netflix and things like that, um, arcane, which is based on league of legends, uh, was excellent and very popular. Um, Castlevania, um, we're seeing like more and more really good examples. And actually just last week, um, there were two big releases in February, actually. The first one in, in, in movies was uh, uncharted, which is based on the uncharted video game series, um, which, uh, the movie version stars, uh, Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg. And it's a sort of a, a fairly faithful recreation of the games as a, as a prequel to the, what happens in the games. Um, and that was quite a fun movie. It's not like amazing. It's not going to set, set the world on fire, but it's, it's good and it's doing very well at the box office and all that stuff. Mm. Um, and then, um, on Netflix, uh, the Cuphead show just started, which is based on Cuphead, uh, a video game, uh, about a guy whose head is a cup. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, it's, um, it's an interesting case Cuphead because the game itself is, um, it's a brutally hard, uh, platform shooting action yep. game. Um, but, Visually, it's um, it's designed in the style of the 1920s, 1930s um, Prohibition era um, animation. So, mm. old Disney um, silly symphonies and Warner Brothers Merry Melodies and Tex Avery cartoons and all that kind of thing, um, and uh, with a sort of a, a, a similarly you know timely like um, jazz soundtrack and that, that kind of thing, which in a video game was very rare. Uh, and then they've adapted it to a, a TV show that's actually got quite a wide. Um, it's a very approachable show that, that would actually be quite suitable for, for kids to watch with their parents kind of thing um, about Cuphead and, and his brother Mugman going on adventures. It's interesting yeah. that you brought that up because um, at the time Cuphead was released, I was working at Unity. Okay. Unity developed game. And that was, that was the thing that they mentioned that it's like, has that old Disney style animation, like Betty Boop. Um, yeah. And it was quite interesting to use Unity, the 3D engine, 3D software in that way. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful game. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's very visually sort of stunning, and to be able to um, take a kind of a cartoon aesthetic like that, but be able to directly control it yourself in a video game, it felt very fresh at the time. But it, it's interesting to then see that come full circle and now be a cartoon show <laughs> on TV on Netflix. Oh, hi, Daniel. Uh, I got sure. a question. You know, um, it might be not your specialty, and it is not good to ask uh, at the <laughs> moment. But you know, on the other part of the globe, you know, that uh, Ukraine-Russia is now on war. And uh, yes. you see, uh, what do you think, uh, is there any Russian, you know, real Russian war game is uh, going on? And uh, is there any actual Russian war game or type of... Oh. No. Sorry about um, this uh, yeah. question, but, you know, <laughs> this is the yeah. moment that, uh, at the moment, that the war is going on. So, uh, sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. So, actually, um, there is a, a game coming up um, that's being released soon called Stalker 2 um, that is actually being developed by a company uh, within the Ukraine. Um, the game company's name is... I've just forgotten it. C, uh, GGSC Game World. Ooh. And um, they posted um, on Twitter, uh, on the t- official Twitter account, to, you know, to their followers and their fans to say, you know, please help us um, 
please uh, send um, donations to, to our armed forces um, to help us in Ukraine. We'll keep on fighting and that kind of thing. Wow. And, um, that, that's seeing, that's seeing a lot of support within, you know, the game community. Um, you know, of course, um, you know, gaming sort of attracts a very wide audience of all kinds of people, but um, certainly there, there are a lot of people who, um, because is a, an art form that is made in countries all around the world. Um, it's actually a very good way to learn about different cultures and, you know, you can play games, um, that come from everywhere. And so, um, I think that that's helped people to, there's a kind of a soft power approach that helps people to feel a lot of empathy. Um, in, in the case of a you know, Ukrainian game developer posting something like that gets a lot of support. Um, there are of course, yeah, lots of video games that have portrayed, um, uh, warfare between, for example, the United States and Russia. I think that the call of duty series, um, would, would be one. Um, I don't generally play a lot of those, um, shooter games. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think you can, you can sort of see, with varying degrees of sensitivity, <laughs> um, yeah. the, the portrayal, you know, of, um, realistic modern warfare and past warfare games that are based on, um, you know, the first world war, the second world war, um, mm. you know, real, uh, real conflicts that have happened in the world. Um, and in the case of the ones that are more sensitive about, about the subject, it can be you know, a good opportunity to, to learn about the different points of view and, um, and a bit of history and, and things that really did happen. Um, whether all players, you know, are paying attention to that or not is, is another question. But, um, I think if you want to look for it, it it's there. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really, well, uh, the time that we need to study about this type of history, uh, mm -hmm. maybe through war game and, but anyway, uh, we'll keep on it. And, uh, the Ukraine, you know, game makers, uh, message is very clear. And, uh, We're going to follow that too. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. No problem. Yeah, I think um, one one actually quite good example of um, a game series um, that has delivered a quite a heavy commentary on, you know, the um, the, the uh, devastation and fallout that can come from war is uh, the Metal Gear Solid series, mm -hmm. uh, obviously a very famous uh, game series from Japan um, that was uh, developed by uh, Konami uh, Hideo Kojima, a very famous game, game developer. And um, it's, a, it's a series that sort of spanned multiple entries and each time sort of delivering a different piece of the same ongoing story set over um, multiple decades. And mm. um, it sort of shows uh, a lot of, you know, while, while games can sometimes be perceived as maybe glorifying um, combat a little bit, um, it's a game that had a very strong stance on mm. the, the, um, the risks of war and the dangers of war and the, and mm. the um, sort of the brainwashing that can go along with it, the propaganda and all of that stuff as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, well, thanks, thanks for the information, and uh, definitely we're going to follow that uh, angle too. Uh, well, thank you, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for your time. I just wanted to say, hopefully, none of your colleagues from the IGN Japan team or like the IGN global team are affected by what's going on. And mm. I also like to say too, you have connections with Russia when you grew up there, so I hope everything is okay on your side. Um, just quick announcement on our side. Um, so. In the future, we're hoping to do more tour spaces, not just in English, but we'll be doing some in Japanese as well. So to our listeners, uh, if you would like to participate as a speaker, please feel to reach out. 
if you want to do it in English, that's fine. If you want to do it in Japanese, sorimagozo. And then Daniel, uh, uh, maybe just a couple of last words from you. Any announcements from IGN or from yourself personally? Oh, uh, no. Uh, so IGN Japan, uh, we publish uh, every day in Japanese uh, at uh, jp.ign.com. And of course, IGN is available in uh, about 20 languages or so around the world, including English, of course, at ign.com. Uh, we publish a lot of uh, news and reviews and uh, videos and podcasts and all of that stuff uh, in Japanese with my team and in English as well. So if anyone is interested, yeah, please go take a look. Are you guys um, looking for freelance writers or contributors? Oh, in yeah. So we're always looking for contributors, and uh, especially if um, if you're a writer who writes in Japanese, that's great. If you're a translator, uh, we look for people who um, can translate from English to Japanese or Japanese to English. Um, we cover some content in English for the for the US site, for the global site, um, out of Japan as well. Um, so yeah, we're always looking for contributors. If if anyone out there is interested, um, by all means, drop me a line on Twitter. All right, so Daniel, again, thank you for your time. So please follow Daniel on Twitter. It's no more Daniels. And on IGN Japan is one word, IGN Japan, the way it's spelled. And uh, make sure you read their news, read their reviews, their updates, or whatever they have. Um, always exciting to see what, they, yeah, what they're always writing about. And read thank Daniel's you. column on Japan Forward, which also links you back to the reviews on his site. Yes. Yeah, please. So um, the, the latest uh, the latest column was just published yesterday, and uh, yeah, it's every month. So yeah, please, uh, I'd love to hear people's uh, feedback or opinions on on that anytime. All right. So thank you again, everyone, for listeners, for joining us today. Follow us also Japan Forward on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel, and this spaces will be distributed on Spotify and Apple Music. Make sure you subscribe to that as well. We'll do this again next week. So keep an eye out on Twitter for the announcement. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Visit our website for more information regarding our podcast and other news on Japan. Catch you next time.